You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolian. Claiming to have a brand purpose without demonstrating positive impact on society doesn't cut it with consumers. They expect brands to make a positive contribution to the world, to educate them, and to help them engage in sustainable behavior versus force-feeding products the world doesn't need. That's according to a study from Ipsos, one of the largest market research companies. Dr. Emmanuel Probst, the global lead of thought leadership for Ipsos, believes the most purposeful brands transform the people they serve in the world we live in, a point he drives home in his new book, Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation. By combining personal, social, and cultural components, he argues, brands can make a positive impact on people, society, and the economy. Dr. Emanuel joins me to discuss key aspects of his book, including embracing the villains in your category, the need for brands to practice responsible consumption, and what we can learn from great artists like Picasso. Dr. Emmanuel, welcome to the podcast. Ken, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, of course, to the ANA for producing such great podcasts as well. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. So to kick things off, Dr. Emmanuel, please give our audience a better sense of what you mean by assemblage and why it serves as a metaphor for building strong brands. Yeah, absolutely. An assemblage is, this terminology is inspired from winemaking. That is when you make a wine or cognac or champagne or bourbon or whiskey, as the winemaker, the way you get to your final product is by picking and choosing from different brandies. And that process is called the assemblage. That is, you combine dozens sometimes more than 100 different brandies, so that you arrive at a product that is unique and differentiates your brand, yet is aligned with your brand image, with your brand message. And also as a winemaker, you have to anticipate how this product will evolve over time and readjust every year so that, again, you stay on track with your brand. So assemblage the title of the book, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation, is meant as a metaphor inspired from winemaking, whereby as brand leaders, we do the same thing, or rather, I prompt us to do the same thing, that is to assemble brands in a dynamic fashion and do so by combining personal and social and cultural attributes and create brands that transform people and the world they live in, as opposed to just selling products that we often don't need. So you write in your book, Dr. Emmanuel, that in marketing, the consumer should be positioned as the hero, not the brand. Why is it that so many brand marketers find that challenging, especially in legacy brands? Because marketers are very often bubbled in their own world. That is, they know more about the brand and the category than anyone else. They think way more and for way longer about the brand and making decisions about their products than people really do. 
they're also very exposed to social media and media in general. They go to nice conferences and they very often live in main hubs like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and, and the likes. As such, it's hard and it's harder for marketing professionals to capture the pulse of the real people. And I'm choosing this word people carefully rather than consumers, because sure. before being consumers, people are individuals, right? And so for this reason, it's just very hard for marketing professionals to put themselves in the shoes of their audience. I read an article not so long ago about the performance of ads that earned awards in Cannes, the festival, versus the actual performance of ads among a general population in the long run. In short, what we marketing professionals find amazing in terms of creativity and sophistication in the message is not necessarily what works well with consumers. And conversely, the ads that we don't find necessarily impressive tend to last for years to come. So if marketers are in fact wrapped in this bubble, as you say, what will it take for them to break out? Well, they have the tools, that's the great news, to capture what happens in the world around them. And by tools, I don't mean just service, but the ability to monitor social media and legislative activity and news activity, news signals, and so on and so forth. So it's really about a mindset. And it's really about a form of humility. So marketers historically will control the narrative. That is also something that is changing. Five, seven, 10 years ago, as a brand leader, you will dictate what your brand and what your product should stand for. Today, you must, whether you want it or not, engage in a process of co-creation with the audience. And that's an opportunity for you to build a brand that's going to better resonate with the audience. You just have to have the humility and frankly, to be brave enough involve your audience in creating and building that brand. So Dr. Emmanuel, you also believe that brands should embrace villains within their marketing category. Why is that such a good idea? And I'm hoping that you can provide a good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a long time in advertising, we relied on the archetype of the hero. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with heroes. The shortcoming, though, is often they're not necessarily relatable. And what I mean by this is if you think of Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or those guys, well, very few of us, if anyone, can jump from one building to, to the next, right? Mm -hmm. And in this book, I suggest that we pay more attention to the archetypes of the anti-heroes, the villains and the saviors. And mm -hmm. Those archetypes are important because they are relatable. So anti-heroes are people that can do something heroic, yet they have flaws. And as long as anti-heroes are willing to address these flaws, well, we will side with them. And it's the same thing with villains. Villains can be sympathetic in their own ways because they don't have many friends. And as nasty as they might be to their opponents, they might have good intentions. And here again, villains 
might try to improve themselves. So you asked for an example, and I think a great example is a ad for General Motors from uh, Super Bowl 2022. And this ad was meant to promote General Motors electric cars, upcoming range of electric cars. And the villain leading in the ad was Dr. Evil, E-V-I-L, right? <laughs> and this villain is inspired by Austin Powers' villain, itself inspired by a villain from a James Bond movie. And you see that bald guy who seems very, very nasty and wants to destroy the world and, and just like all villains, if you will. And he's quite scary at first, yet he's sympathetic because he's on his way to redemption and that makes him relatable. And the punchline that, that concludes the ad is... I must save the world first before taking over the world. So mm. that's a great example of how one in marketing, the consumer should be positioned as the hero, not the brand. So the anti-hero or the villain is here to shed light on what the consumer can do. And number two, how a villain can be sympathetic and relatable in her or his own ways, often more so than a traditional hero. Do you believe, you know, in your expertise that too many brands are focused on being the hero and not the other two? Absolutely. For the aforementioned reason of marketers being obsessed with their brands, but in most categories. The other shortcoming, Ken, is in our industry, we always point to the same case studies. Let me guess. Nike, Patagonia, Apple, you know, <laughs> Airbnb, REI, all mm-hmm. these are great, but they are anecdotal in nature. That's because very brands, very few brands, I'm sorry, and very few needs, very few shopping missions command such cult following and are that as charged emotionally, right? Most decisions, consumers, I mean, I hate to say, to put it that bluntly, Ken, but most people don't care about most brands. That's really it. There are a few brands around you that you engage with on an emotional level that you're passionate about, but most brands you don't care. Yeah, I mean, there was a study by Havas Media that suggested that, that 75% of brands could go away and consumers wouldn't bat an eye. You're right. That that speaks to your point. (laughs) Oh, 100%. I remember that study. Absolutely. And that's because of the functional nature of those products. And that's because how overwhelming the sheer number of products and brands we can choose from is just overwhelming. So as consumers become more outspoken against the brands that don't align against their personal values, What's your message now to the marketing community? Well, my first message is a message of humility, whereby as marketers, you need to co-create and you need to take on board not just the feedback, but literally the input of your audience. I will differentiate expectations from intentions. In our industry, we often talk about managing expectations. That's fine. It's important. Expectations is what you as a consumer expect to receive its table stakes. Expectations are about 
the product needs to work, the return policy needs to be lenient, the, the price needs to be right, and the customer service has to be seamless. Those are expectations. They're very important. I would contrast this, though, with intentions. And intention is a process of co-creation. Expectations is do me. Expectations is I receive from the brand what I expect to receive. In A brand that is intentional is a brand that is going to co-create the product with me. So my call to marketers is harness this opportunity of co-creating the brand and its territory and what it means with your audience, which in turn will make your brand more successful and most importantly, successful in the long run. Does that co-creation extend to your suppliers, your potential partners, like nonprofits, et cetera? Do they all play a role in that co-creation other than consumers? Oh, absolutely. I think your suppliers can play a role and your supply chain in general can play a role in, in doing the right thing. And here I'm thinking about anything that has to do with upcycling and recycling, for example, mm -hmm. whereby the likes of Levi's and the likes of Lululemon and even Ikea let you bring back gently worn, gently used items so that the brand is going to resell these items to uh, a new owner to give them a second life. And here, that's a great example of doing the right thing for the environment, but also for the local community and getting both customers and also consumers and also merchants, suppliers, franchises involved in doing the right thing for the economy and conveying this important message about the brand. Hey there, Beyond Profit listener. The ANA Champions of Growth podcast explores the various aspects of the industry's growth agenda with the goal of helping marketing leaders create a stronger, more sustainable economic future for their brands. With topics ranging from brand safety and ad fraud to marketing organization, Host Matthew Schwartz discusses the topics that matter most with our industry's foremost leaders. Learn more by visiting ana.net slash podcasts. And now, back to the show. I am joined today by Dr. Emmanuel Probst, author of Assemblage and the Global Lead of Brand Thought Leadership for Ipsos. Dr. Emmanuel, in your book, you write that people often carefully select what brands they follow to curate their virtual identity and present an idealized version of themselves. I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit on that argument. I can indeed. Our sense of identity is fragmented now. It's more complicated than ever before. That's because we wrestle with at least three types of selves, our real self, who we are for in real life, for our friends, our family, the people around us. And then there's our digital selves that is often slightly different, who we are on social media, who we want to appear to be on LinkedIn, on TikTok, on Instagram, on what have you. And the last one that's coming up is our virtual self. Our virtual self might have to do with who we will be in the metaverse or 
of various generative artificial intelligence applications. And so really the fact is that technologies and platforms such as social media and messaging apps and data clouds and the metaverse, they both facilitate but also threaten our sense of self. Mm -hmm. And as such, we really wrestle with how we can create and socialize and keep or delete a vast numbers of images and pieces of data that in many ways define who we are, but also who we want to appear to be, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So here again, I think the brand is not the hero. The brand is going to facilitate the brand needs to be useful and facilitate things for us, people, individuals. The brand is not the hero. The brand is going to facilitate, to take me, to transform me from who I am to who I want to become. Mm -hmm. That's the opportunity. You mentioned uh, just, just a second ago about technology, the metaverse, et cetera. Do you believe that technology can be a force for good, can drive purposeful marketing? Yes, in that regard, that it allows for great personalization. One example that comes to mind, 10, 15 years ago, the textbook example for personalization would be Ritz-Carlton. You will go to the Ritz-Carlton, assuming you can afford it, and the concierge or whoever will check you in will know about how you like your eggs for breakfast and what type of pillow you like and various small details about your preferences. And at the time, only someone like Ritz-Carlton could do this because only Ritz-Carlton will charge enough to deliver that type of service and keep track of their best customers. If you think of the DTC model today, that's exactly how they strive. And an overwhelming majority of DTC brands are not in the luxury business. My point being is that technology in particular cloud computing and, and CRM software of various kinds made it possible to develop a personal relationship with your customers that was once the exclusivity of someone like Ritz Carlton. So I found it interesting, uh, Dr. Emmanuel, in your book, you said that you believe Luciano Bennett, he's an Italian billionaire businessman, you you say that he's the inventor of brand purpose. Why is that? Yeah, in the 80s, I was very touched by the Benetton ads at the time. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm dating myself. <laughs> uh, United Colors of Benetton was a very famous brand of uh, clothing brand, uh, particularly in Europe at the time. And the advertisements were about being disruptive, being shocking for the audience. And for example, you will see people with HIV or you will see two men kissing or you will see a black person kissing a white person. And today, this has become, thankfully, uh, I don't know if I should say mainstream, but in any case, it has become a lot less surprising for most people. But at the time, putting on an ad a black baby kissing a white baby 
was just all over the news. And in that regard, that's why I mean that Benetton was in the 80s a, a trailblazer blazer for brand purpose, while everyone else was to advertise on colors and cuts and fabrics and materials and price, Benetton could take a stance on what at the time was really thrown upon, that is same-sex issues, uh, uh, issues around um, diversity and inclusion and races. We didn't know what DEI was at the time, but really invented the cause, if you will, in the context of branding and marketing. So you also write in your book that brands must encourage consumers and customers to repair, recycle, and resell products to help protect the environment. Please talk a little bit about why now's the time for responsible consumption. Yes, because the world is becoming a giant trash can and it is not sustainable that we keep changing clothes every six months, let alone give away or resell clothes that we hardly ever worn. So that's really a shift. You see this in past fashion. For example, for years, people would want to change clothes every six months. And if you look at younger generations now, they like to keep their items longer. They like to repair. They like to thrift shop. They like to give those items a second life. These are examples of upcycling. Recycling is, of course, again, about what materials, what components of an existing product can we use towards manufacturing a new product. So everyone wins in this process. The environment is going to win for obvious reasons. The brand is going to win because it demonstrates a stronger purpose, but also because it will bring to the brand people who will not have shopped the brand otherwise. So when I mentioned Lululemon earlier and the ability to buy gently used, gently worn yoga pants, the truth is that it will bring people to the category and it will bring people to the brand whom otherwise would not have spent $150 on a pair of yoga pants. And It benefits also this new user because it's an opportunity to give a second life to the product and as such to establish a sense of permanence and reassurance about the product and the future. Do you believe that most brands have the credentials to be reaching out to consumers and customers and asking them to do exactly what we just talked about, repair, recycle, and resell? I think many brands have the credential to do this. I think it's about bravery and it's about battling your fear addressing your fear that oh my god if i tell people that they can bring back the items to the store i'm going to cannibalize my own business that's the wrong way to think about business in general as a brand whether you're in tech or in clothing apparel or personal care you have to admit you have to acknowledge that the world is changing and you may decide to change with the world or die. And brands that do it well. So think about Apple 10 years ago with the MP3 player. And uh, iPod was so successful. And then smartphones evolved so that you can store songs on your smartphone. 
Well, Apple could have tried to keep selling iPads, thinking, wow, that's a cash cow and I don't want to lose it. Or Apple could make the brave move that it made, that was to kill the iPad and invest in a better smartphone instead. And now we all know the success of the iPhone. It takes a lot of courage to do this, sometimes to literally kill a product, kill a revenue model to do what will be right in the future. Mm -hmm. So by the same token, it might feel scary for IKEA that made its success based on easy to assemble cheap furniture, all of a sudden to tell people, hey, you can bring it back (laughs) and we'll buy it back from you. But see the opportunity, see the light, see the opportunity of this new relationship with the consumer, not the threat of the $25 or so revenue that you're losing on a bookshelf. Dr. Emmanuel, what advice do you have for brands who are just starting on their sustainability journey? And why is transparency especially critical to success? Well, my key advice is claim a purpose that you can stand by and demonstrate. And when it comes down to sustainability in particular, it has to be relatable. It has to be realistic. It has to be actionable. Here's what I mean. I went through Heathrow Airport in London, UK, not so long ago. Heathrow Airport claims that they will become carbon neutral. I believe it's by 2030, might be by 2035. But in any case, it's ludicrous. How can an airport become carbon neutral, considering that Heathrow is one of the 10 largest airports in the world, when you read the small print, you see that it's actually not the airport that's going to become carbon neutral, but only its operations. Mm. Oh, and by the way, just part of the operations that Heathrow Airport controls. What this means is they'll be carbon neutral at concourse 75 of the airport and everything else won't be. So that's an extreme example of a claim on sustainability that is not believable, not relatable, too distant as well. I don't think people care that much about what's going to happen in 2030 and in 2035. They want to understand how they can make an impact tomorrow, right? And as such, I think brands need to adopt purpose, claim purpose that they can stand by and they can demonstrate, if possible, immediately. Lastly, uh, you also write in your book, and I found this part interesting as well, that the arts enable the creation of powerful and purposeful brands. I haven't really heard that from anyone else. So why do you think brands need to become artistic and cultural agents? Yeah, so I like to illustrate my books with examples that are way outside of the marketing, advertising, market research industry. And in that regard, in assemblage, I look at what made the success of the likes of Pharrell Williams and DJ Khaled and Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart and also Picasso and also Jeff Koons and Alain Ducasse and Gordon Ramsay. And that's just to say that all these people are great marketers. And his why is, first off, they're not necessarily 
they're talented, but not always in the way we may think. And what I mean by this is that they have entire teams working for them. That means they have an artistic vision and their real talent is in assembling to deliver on that artistic vision rather than necessarily create the work of art itself. And what we can learn from them, wow, so many things. One, we can learn how to deal with our imposter syndrome um, and create and market brands at scale. We can learn how to develop a big idea and scale this big idea. That's exactly what Picasso did. He has a Picasso style that's very clearly identified, yet he created dozens of thousands of artworks across mm -hmm. formats. They can also teach us about brand partnerships. And I mentioned Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. Mm -hmm. That's a great example of a brand partnership that is quirky, meaning it's intriguing and it's disruptive, yet it's very impactful. So for so many reasons, we can look at artists and the way they create brands, the way they copy, transform, and combine different attributes from other brands or other artworks, work of arts, in order to create a unique and differentiated value proposition. Dr. Emmanuel Probst, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ken, and thank you to our listeners today. And once again, thank you to the ANA, not only for putting together this great podcast, but also for all the work you do to make our industry better and more efficient. Thank you. To learn more about Ipsos, please visit ipsos.com. And to obtain a copy of Assemblage, please visit emmanuelprobst.com. If you have a topic or a speaker you would like to recommend for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.